Are we a Christian nation? Was America founded as a Christian nation? Of course, those are difficult questions that require more than simplistic answers. And the answers depend on what you mean by Christian. And it maybe what mean uh, depends on what you mean by nation as well. But, of course, we know that many of the founding fathers, like Benjamin Franklin, really they're best described as deists rather than born-again convictional Christians. And we know people like Thomas Jefferson rejected the miraculous portions of the Bible, including the resurrection of Jesus. And we know that many slave owners removed Exodus from the Bible, the, the Bibles that they gave to their slaves. We also know the econ, that economic gain really was the main driver for most who came to America. But most importantly, we also know that the Europeans who came to America were not the first Americans. However, it's also true that the Pilgrim Fathers who came to America, they came in order to live their lives freely according to their biblical faith. They're probably best described by church historians as uh, separatist or semi-separatist, meaning that they disagreed with their country's uh, enforcement of religion, and they wanted to live according what, to, to what they believed the Bible was teaching. They wanted to separate or, or at least partially separate from the Church of England in order to be more faithful to the Bible. Those Pilgrim Fathers were very pious, devout people. They read the Bible, and they saw in the Bible the clear, some clear teachings of how to live their lives, and they wanted to live according to the Bible's teachings. And further, not only personally, but they wanted to live according to the Bible's teachings about the church. About they were they cared about what the Bible taught about the nature of the church and how the church ought to be organized and what churches ought to be doing. So they put their lives on the line, and they traveled over three months to a wilderness in order to suffer through creating lives in that wilderness, in order to get away from the oppression of England, all so that they could live freely according to their biblical convictions. We should understand those convictions. We should admire their piety, and I think we should follow their example and organize our churches according to the teachings of the Bible. Today is the uh, second week in a nine-week study of the book of Titus. And as we've said, this book is a call to be devoted to good doctrine and good deeds. Last Sunday, we looked at Titus 1, verses 1 to 4, and we saw the link between good doctrine and good deeds. We noted that Paul's apostolic ministry was all about increasing, quote, the knowledge of truth, verse 1, of God's people. However, this knowledge is not irrelevant, speculative knowledge. This doctrine is, quote, which accords to godliness, verse 1. In other words, the good doctrine Paul was talking about led to good deeds amongst God's elect. Today, we're beginning to look at some of this good doctrine. This is the first of two messages on elders. And we're going to see the good doctrine that God's people are to organize into churches, including organizing elder teams. Therefore, this is maybe kind of an informative passage and an informative sermon. We're going to learn some things today. But Titus 1, 5 to 6 is important because we don't always make the connection between the Great Commission and church planting. The kingdom comes through church planting. Also, we don't always make the connection between church planting and raising up elders. Elders lead and shepherd churches. Therefore, we need to learn the importance of organizing churches and organizing elder teams. However, 
some of us are going to be tempted to check out for a couple of reasons. First, you might be thinking, I'm not an elder, so why does this message even matter to me? Well, Titus 1 verses 5 and 6 mattered because uh, you need to be a member of a church and church members need to nominate elders. Average, everyday Christians need to know an elder when, when they see an elder because you have the responsibility to nominate elders. And further, God's going to call you to follow those elders. Therefore, you better nominate good ones. Second, you might be tempted to check out thinking, who cares? This is not really relevant to my life. What does church organization have to do with the problem I'm struggling with right now? I would argue that God thinks it important enough to include it in the Word, therefore it should be important to us. But further, we're going to see that it is good news that God gives us a local church and faithful shepherds. In fact, nothing could be more relevant to your struggles than to have a church and elders who are faithful and loving. So first, we're going to see a link between the Great Commission and organizing churches. And then second, we're going to see uh, the link between organizing churches and organizing elders. And this is God's plan. So point number one, if you're following along, is to link the Great Commission to organizing churches. Let me read verses 5 and 6. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I direct you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Verse 5 says this is why Paul left Titus on the island of Crete. Therefore, we need to look back for a quick moment at, at the this he's referring to. In the previous four verses, Paul explained that his apostolic ministry was all about increasing and improving the knowledge of the truth of God's people in a way that led them to godliness. Paul was an apostle, meaning that he was a messenger. God had given him a message, and his job was to create new content. But uh, his job was not to create new content, but rather to deliver a God-given message. The message was the truth, verse 1, of the gospel. God atoned for the sins of his people. Substitutionary atonement is the heart of the gospel, and that is the heart of the faith of God's elect. This truth and doctrine is good. It's good news. But there is a sense that the faith and knowledge of God's people needed to grow. The Christian life is about increasing faith and increasing knowledge. How, excuse me. And however, <coughs> and this is the clear point of the book of Titus, that increasing faith and increasing knowledge, it's meant to lead to increasing godliness. Good doctrine is meant to lead to good deeds. If it doesn't, then we're doing it wrong. <laughs> if it doesn't, then we're not truly believing good doctrine or, believe, or we're believing false doctrine. So this link from good doctrine to good deeds, that's in line with the Great Commission. As Jesus left his followers and before his ascension into heaven, he commanded his disciples to make more disciples, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. And specifically, the way we're to do it, the way we're to make disciples, is by, quote, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Therefore, they were to teach good doctrine in order, for, in, in order to make disciples, and they wanted those disciples then to display good deeds. So like Jesus, his disciples were to have a teaching ministry so that the later followers of Jesus would increasingly look like Jesus. That's why Paul left Titus on Crete. 
Like Jesus and Paul before him, Titus was to teach God's word in order to make disciples. He was to teach good doctrine in order to produce people who did good deeds. This is why Titus was on Crete. Well, Crete was a was and is a, a large, beautiful Greek island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And at the time of Roman rule during the first century, it had a large Jewish population. And that's significant because in, in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit came upon the church at the Pentecost festival in Jerusalem, and thousands of Jews were in the city from all over the world, including Jews from the island of Crete. That's, that's uh, noted in Acts chapter 2, verse 11. That day, 3,000 people were converted, and the church age began. Therefore, most likely, there were Jews who then brought the gospel back to Crete. However, Paul also briefly visited the island on his way to Rome for his trial in Acts 27. It's likely that Paul also visited Crete after he was released from prison in, in Acts 28. Therefore, Paul had a brief connection with the Cretan church that could be considered part of, of what is considered his fourth missionary journey. These missionary journeys were in line with Jesus' teaching about the Great Commission. Paul was teaching people the gospel, some were converted, and then he was teaching to obey, teaching them to obey all of God's word. He was teaching them, again, the knowledge of truth, verse 1, and which led to godliness, verse 1. He was teaching them good doctrine that led to good deeds. But, and this is essential for every Christian to understand, evangelism always culminated in the organization of churches. The kingdom comes through church planting. Paul was always working to organize uh, these new disciples into churches. Again, Titus 1.5 says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. Paul had called Titus to organize, to put into order those converts uh, into a church. Biblically, the Great Commission culminated into churches being planted. There was a link between go and make disciples, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, and put what remained in order, Titus 1, 5. Proclamation led to evangelism, which led to discipleship, which led to church planting. Again, the kingdom comes through church planting. Titus 1, 5, and 6 calls us to understand that link between the Great Commission and organizing into churches. Okay, let's come up for air. What does this first link mean for us? Well, I think it means we're to be a church planting church. Uh, Pastor Daniels has been with us about a year now, and uh, he's come in with some fresh eyes. And when we were in the hiring process, I shared how the elders have been talking about how certain things were functioning, good and bad, in, in, a, in the church, in that we were like now an established church and not really a church plant anymore. It, it had to be a mindset shift for me. And the other day, Daniel made the comment, you, you know, I think it's time for us to understand that we are an established church. And, and I think he's right. So what, uh, so what does it mean for an established church to be a church planting church? I, I know what a church plant, what it looks like for a church plant to be a church planting church. But what about an established church? Well, I think it means a few things for a church our size and ability. First, it means that we give financial support to church plants. When you give your tithes to the Lord through giving to Redeemer Church, know that 10% of our budget is designated for missions. A big portion of those funds go directly to church planting, and the missions team is currently re-strategizing how we can have a more strategic impact. Currently, we're directly supporting two international church plants as well as different church planting ministries. 
Second, I, I believe it means encouraging our ministry-minded leaders to consider church planting. We've had a staff member leave to plant a church and another staff member leave to replant a dying church. I, I believe that that's healthy and good. Now, hear me, not every pastor should go plant a church. However, I believe every pastor should pray about it. Third, and, and this is important to me, I want us to be a place where young church planters can come and learn to preach within the loving and encouraging environment and context of our church. I have the unique experience of having a graduate degree in church planting. Kristen and I have helped plant four churches. I teach a church planting course at, at Dallas Baptist University and assess, coach, and train church planters through the Denton Baptist Association and the SIN Network. Therefore, God's given me this front row seat of seeing what He is doing through church planting. For example, this week, I had lunch with, with six Asian church planters that God has brought to North Texas in order to minister to Indian, Chinese, and Korean immigrants. I want you to know, I want you guys to know them and support them and pray for them. Therefore, like when we had Pastor Paul come and preach twice this summer, I want to keep scheduling gifted brothers to come and minister to you so that you can gain a vision for church planting and so that they can learn to preach and find their voice. Friends, I, I want you to hear how excited I am and how excited our elders are and how excited our missions team is uh, regarding the role that Redeemer Church gets to play in the kingdom of God. Andy can tell you this, that 10 years ago, our first budget was about $120,000. It's now over $600,000. So our little 10% missions offering, that's increased every year as the overall budget has increased. That means we can... We get to give generously to these sweet couples planting churches. The link between the Great Commission and organizing churches is a call for us to be a church planting church. We're in a position to really help expand the kingdom of God through church planting. However, at the end of verse 5, Paul began talking about elders. Therefore, not only are we, are we to see a link between the Great Commission to organizing churches, but we're also to see a second link from organizing churches to organizing elders. In other words... When organizing a church, you have to organize an elder team. <clears throat> Let me read these verses again. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I direct you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. When Paul called Titus to put what remained into order, to organize the believers into healthy churches. The first step was to appoint elders. In other words, there was a link between organizing churches to organizing elders. The first step Paul gave to Titus uh, to take in or when organizing a church was to organize these elder teams. Well, what's an elder? The Greek term is presbyteros, which is where we get the word presbytery and then presbyterian. Strictly, it means older, specifically an older man. And typically, elders are older. Of course, age is relative. Jesus was 33 when he died on the cross, and his disciples were likely younger than him. However, the reason for the use of the term is to emphasize the virtue of old age. In other words, using the, the term for older is about describing people who are wise and discerning. The trials of life uh, give wisdom to most older people. However, the term elder is actually an office in the church. The Bible gives the church two offices, deacon and elder. Churches can 
have other positions. However, the biblical offices they must have are deacon and elder. These offices are within the local church. And and I believe, I hear me, I believe in denominations that partner for missions, but the Bible does not speak about offices outside the local church. The office of deacon is initially referenced in Acts 6. These were men that the elders requested of the members to nominate for the purpose of fulfilling an important ministry need within the church. It was a service type of ministry. However, the elders requested nominations because if they were to fulfill it, it would take away from their important ministries of, of preaching and prayer. The second office is the office of elder. And we're going to spend this week and, and next week studying the qualifications of elders. We're going to study primarily who they were meant to be, but also what they're supposed to do. Titus 1, 5 to 9, along with 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, they're the two lists of qualifications for elders. However, you might be thinking, okay, wait a second. What about the role of pastor? We interpret the New Testament in a way that the office of pastor and the office of elder, they're synonymous office, offices or the same offices. However, 1 Timothy five eighteen says, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. We take this to mean that it's good to have a pastor who has the calling and experience and giftedness to be paid by the church and to fulfill his elder office in a full-time capacity. We recognize not every church can do that. Our church is able to do that. Um, and in, in order to distinguish that I'm a vocational elder, we, we call me a, a pastor. But, but really, I'm, I function just as an elder. I, I don't have more votes on the elder team than, than the lay elders do. Again, the best way to interpret the, op, interpret the office of elder is that it's synonymous with pastor. Now, the first clear thing that we see about the qualifications of elders is that they're to be men. Now, some churches allow women to be elders, but we don't think that that is a biblical position. Complementarianism, this theological uh, position of complementarian, complementarianism, it's the it's the uh, uh, opinion that when a church that, that a church should only allow men to be elders, that position complementarianism says that men and women are equal in their dignity, they're equal in their value as created in the image of God. Men and women have the same access to God for salvation. However, in the church and in the home, there are some complementary roles to be played. We believe the Bible is very clear that only men should be elders. However. I do understand that this is a controversial position. That can be hard on the hearts of women. It's hard because throughout history, women have been abused by men. Women have been treated as second-class citizens. The church needs to be sensitive to those realities and be sensitive to domineering male leadership and toxic masculinity. Our elders and staff, I think, also need to be sensitive to hear from the perspectives of women in our church, as well as work to ensure that we have ladies in leadership roles. However, the theology behind complementarianism is that God is trying to teach men to lead. And specifically, he's calling men uh, to be shepherds uh, in their churches as well as in their homes. And this leads to the first category of elder qualification, their home life. But before we speak to the elders' home life, we need to unpack the term above reproach. The overarching qualification of an elder is that he is to be above reproach. Some of your translations might say blameless. It means without accusation. Now, it doesn't mean perfect or perfection. Only Jesus is perfect. 
However, if someone in the church nominates a man to be an elder, it should mean that that someone can't make a credible case accusing them of something that would disqualify them as an elder. They're respectable men, and we understand them to be godly and mature and wise. But again, where Paul goes first is to explain above reproach is the elder's home life. He needs to be above reproach or blameless in his home life. Now, next week, we're going to unpack how he relates to others and how he relates to God. But verse 6 says that he is to be the husband of one wife. Now, this, this first is about polygamy. Literally, elders are to only have one wife. However, physically, elders should display sexual purity with only one wife. This includes what he looks at. Further, emotionally, he should be a one-woman type of man. He should give his heart to only his wife. An elder is called to shepherd the flock of God, but that begins with shepherding his wife. When we approach a man about being an elder, we always want to hear from his wife. She needs to be on board, and she, need, and, and she needs to view her husband as qualified. Recently, we approached a man about joining the elder team, and we had a sweet conversation with his wife. And, and I stood there uh, with her husband and my wife, and frankly, I teared up as she esteemed her husband. Uh, she was supportive of him serving because she had seen him lead well in, in, in her home. Further, uh, above reproach means that elders' children are to, number one, be believers— Number two, not be open to the charge of debauchery. And number three, uh, uh, not be open to the charge of insubordination. Believers means that they should be born again and display a faithfulness in their lives as a result of their father's shepherding. Debauchery is about wastefulness or, or recklessness or lavish living or drunkenness. Insubordination is about rebellion and being disobedient and refusing to submit to authority. An elder is called to shepherd the flock of God. But that means with shepherding the souls and minds and behaviors of his children. That's where it begins. But wives and children, I want you to hear something. This is not a standard of perfection for you or your husband or father. Listen, we know he's going to be imperfect as a husband as a husband and as a father. However, please also know him being an elder... It does not mean that there's a standard for perfection of you either. He's the one being evaluated. We should see evidence of soul care and shepherding by our elders, beginning with how they shepherd and care for their wives and and children. We should not be looking for perfection. Elders, this is a really high bar. And if you're like me, I always walk away feeling the weight of these passages on the qualifications of elders. You're probably like me and thinking about the ways uh, you're missing the mark in your home life. Brothers, can I tell you why Titus 1, 5, and 6 is good news for you? If you're struggling as a husband and father, don't you want God's Word to call you to a higher standard? Don't you love her and those kiddos so much that you want to be a great husband and a great father? Isn't it good news that God, through His Word, doesn't let you slip into being an unloving husband and father? Wives and and kids of elders, you might at times feel like you're in a fishbowl. Your husband or father is going to be burdened for other people besides just you. He's going to have to spend time away from you ministering to other people. But can I tell you also why Titus 1, 5, and 6 is good news for you? Being an elder is ultimately going to make him a better husband and father. He's going to become more sympathetic and loving. 
He's going to gain wisdom on how to deal with struggles and then help you through your struggles. He's going to be a better shepherd of your soul. And as a result of learning how to shepherd other, uh, uh, how to, as a result of learning how to shepherd other people's souls. So why is all this information good news for the church? Um, people who are not elders. Well, Titus 1, 5, and 6, it, it is one of those informative passages. We've had to walk through the ins and outs of theological positions. However, even though this is information that we need to learn, it's still good news for all of us in the church, even if we're not elders. You see, it's good news because God gives you shepherds. God loves you so much and cares about your soul so much that he created the institution of the church and the office of elders in order to shepherd your soul. He, he's been working for years in the lives of real men in your, in your lives like Mike and Andy and Brian because he's committed to care for your soul. They love you. They pray for you. They take time and energy away from their families in order to care for you. Titus 1, 5 and 6 is good news. It's also good news because God gives you his standard for when shepherds fail. Elders and, and, and pastors fail. But because God has given us his standard, we're not to blame God when they fail. We're to blame them. It is inauthentic and it's not intellectually honest when God clearly lays out his standard for elders and then the elder fails to live up to those standards by hurting you, but then you blame God. That's not intellectually honest. That's, that is inauthentic when people do that. When that happens, someone is just looking for a way out of faithfulness. Our elders do the best they can, but they, but they are imperfect. If they don't live up to God's standards and you get hurt, blame them and not God. Isn't it good news that God's given us his high standard for the office of elder? Based upon the truths of Titus 1, 5 to 6, I want to encourage you to do some things. I want you to do some things regarding the link between the Great Commission to organizing churches, as well as regarding the link between organizing churches to organizing elders. <clears throat> First, pray our church would be a church planting church. The missions team's meeting today, and they're really doing some great work this year. They're re strategizing so that we can have a more significant kingdom impact. Pray for them and the leaders of our church to truly be a church-planting church. Second, participate in our church being a church-planting church, meaning pray about joining the missions team. Talk to me or talk to Andy if you're interested. Show up and encourage church planters when they come and preach. Not all of our pastors are going to leave and plant churches, but encourage them to at least pray about it. If you're sensing a call into vocational ministry, come talk to me or or the staff or the elders. We, we want to help you determine God's call and equip you for ministry. We've developed some great tools to help you. Number three, pray for our leaders. I personally have felt the burden of this passage this week, and I promise you that, like me, Andy, Mike, and Brian, they all feel this. They all feel this burden of this sermon and this passage, and there's a part of them that doesn't want to show up next week to finish. Uh, this section. We feel the burden, and it's healthy and right to feel the burden. Every time an elder reads this passage, he walks away needing to evaluate and change and repent and grow and believe again. Pray for our elders. But fourth, follow our leaders. Brothers and sisters, you have good leaders in this church. They sacrificially love you. They're never going to be perfect. There might be things that 
you would do differently if you were in their shoes. However, God has blessed you with good leaders in this church, and they love you, and they're for you. Last Sunday, my childhood pastor passed away. Dr. Wayne Blankenship had an impact on my life. When I was seven years old, I was asking questions about the gospel to my parents, and they asked Dr. Wayne to come over to our house and speak to me about the gospel. I was converted that day. Later that year, he baptized me. Eighteen years later, he married Kristen and me. For the Ranger fans out there, Wayne hit for the pastoral cycle with me. I know many people have what uh, we're now calling church hurt. I have my own. I've seen godly people do very ungodly things. And like many of you, I've learned the hard lesson that the main difference between those outside the church and inside the church is the grace of God. Some of you might have seen your pastor do immoral or abusive things. I'm sorry for you, truly. However, that has not been my experience because of Wayne Blankenship. Wayne was a good man. He's not a perfect, no one is a perfect man, but he was above reproach. He was a blameless man. He was open and kind. I knew he cared for us. He had integrity. I felt comfortable approaching him. I respected and esteemed him. The older I've gotten, the more I I admired him. However, I, I don't remember many things from his sermons. Unlike the famous platform preachers, I actually don't remember any of his sermons. That is not to say he wasn't a great preacher or that sermons are unimportant. The main thing I remember him saying was from our wedding when he emphasized the importance of moments. His preaching was like all great preaching. It was about the moment. His sermons were not necessarily about posterity, but about the moment for real people in his congregation. But again, I don't remember the specifics of his sermons. Now, that does say probably more about me than him. And, and it has nothing to and, and that's not saying that he wasn't a great preacher or that sermons are unimportant. Rather, his impact on me is a testimony to his presence and to his character. When we moved back to Denton to plant Redeemer Church, he was one of the leaders in the community that supported and encouraged me. He was a genuine open door. He offered wisdom and encouraging words. I really began to see him as what some people call a Christian statesman. You see, his integrity, who he was, that's what gave him credibility. That was the secret sauce of his impact. I'm so grateful to have grown up in Wayne Blankenship's congregation. He was not famous, but he was a real pastor. He didn't have a podcast, but he was there for me in the three most significant moments of my life. He didn't write a best-selling book, but he knew my name. He seized the moments. He did the hard, faithful work of being an above-reproach pastor, and God used him to change my life for eternity. I'm now a pastor, and I pray that I can be that type of pastor for the kids of Redeemer Church that Wayne was for me. Brothers and sisters, we're called to organize into churches and thus organize elder teams. And hear me, you have good leaders. They are imperfect, but you have real, honest, hard-working, above-reproach men who display evidence of shepherding their family. They love you. They pray for you. They're here to care for your soul. They run to rather than run away from the hard stuff. So pray for them, follow them, and thank God for your elders.